Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the short week. Welcome to Thanksgiving week. We're going inside EMS once again. I am your host, Chris Sotolaro, and the man that I'm giving thanks for this week, here he is, our good friend, Kelly Grayson, KG. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you too, man. You got you got anything planned? I'm gonna be I'm gonna be sitting at work on Thanksgiving. You know, you always work on Thanksgiving. I mean, it seems that you give up Thanksgiving for Christmas, right? I I don't give up anything for anything. It's just the fickle finger of fate has effed with me again. <laughs> I, I just the way the schedule falls, man. Yeah, I mean, it seems that every time we talk, I mean, Thanksgiving is one of your. Uh, staples in the year so i i guess i'm going to give thanks that things don't change so congratulations for that yeah uh well it's the nice thing is usually somebody brings by a plate or something um i just we we sit at the station and wait for uh the inevitable moment when a family member stabs another family member with a fork you know nothing says being thankful for your blessings like 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 fighting with family That's and right. uh and attacking someone over that last Hawaiian roll. That's right, man. And those Hawaiian rolls can go. So, well, glad that you're here, everybody. And, you know, Kelly and I are very, very thankful for uh, you guys coming to listen to us every week, uh, day after day. And, uh, you know, Kelly, I don't know if you know this, but in 2023, which is five short, six short weeks away, whatever it is, we will have been doing this show for 10 years. We have just about 1.7 million listens in 10 years. And I got to tell you, man, when I was looking at the numbers the other day, I am pretty thankful that uh, we have an audience that really appreciates us coming to them week in and week out for, you know, almost 10 years. You know, I, uh, it occurs to me and, and it's, it's depressing that you are currently my, my longest running relationship. Longest running successful, relationship. successful relationship. You know, and just remember, regardless of how big you are, I will always be the bigger spoon. Yeah, because you're older. It's just only a chronological age. Thing. That's right. That's right. So, you know, Kelly, you know, you and I have talked about in the past, you know, working on the community paramedicine uh, study that I'm doing with uh, major payer paying for community paramedicine home visits. And I had the opportunity to visit with uh, one of the systems that was involved. I made a, a run through Kentucky this week uh, on my way from uh, Columbus, Ohio. I was there giving a talk to the uh, EMS uh, Chiefs Association. And then I figured I would just drive home. I had the opportunity to stop at Lexington, uh, Kentucky EMS. And then I went on over to Louisville. And uh, I was having a conversation with uh, Chris Lockett. He is the major with the Louisville Metro EMS and he kind of runs their quality improvement and clinical excellence side of the business. And we decided to have a conversation about one of the studies that they're doing, which really kind of brings back into play the discussion of intubation skills for paramedics. But before we get into that discussion, Kelly, Chris, come on in here. I want to thank you for joining us on this holiday week, the holiday edition of Inside EMS and being our guest this week. Well, thanks for having me. I, I greatly appreciate the uh, the invite and the opportunity to be here, and uh, you know, looking forward to our discussion about airway and all of the uh, the feedback that I'm sure the EMS community will provide on this topic that's never been debated. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Feedback's a gentle term for it. Well, you know, it's it's uh, I'm trying to ease into things, right? <laughs> yeah. 
but it is one of the things, you know, as we evolve, there may be, you know, one of the things that we think about, you know, I don't know how long you've been in the war here, Chris, but Kelly and I have been doing this, uh, you know, I've got the over 35 Kelly is at 30 and, you yeah. know, we have seen some great progression in our career field. We were using mass pads. I mean, I would make the joke when I was in Columbus that our first defibrillator was opening the uh, van hood and hooking up to the battery <laughs> and using the jumper cables to uh, Life Pack One. That was Life Pack One. And um, yeah. we've seen some great, uh, you know, we've seen some great advances in EMS, but that doesn't mean that we have to stay along the advanced. Uh, road, right? So, Chris, before we get started, I mean, you and I really started this discussion because Louisville is part of this big study. And go ahead and just tell the audience a little bit about the study, what it is, and what you guys are, uh, you know, trying to do. And, and this is really a national study, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so the the study is the pre pre hospital airway control trial or PACT, uh, and it's one arm within the lights network, um, and, it, and it's a it's primarily focused on trauma patients, um, but uh, this particular arm, PACT, uh, is, is really taking a hard look uh, at airway uh, management from an EMS standpoint and, and trying to, to, to answer the question of, you know, is there a better adjunct, you know, uh, intubation versus superglottic uh, versus bag valve mask, you know, um, and, and what is the best you know, approach to, to managing the airway of these patients uh, as it relates to outcomes. Uh, and so it's a, it's a multi-center trial. It's a stepped wedge trial. Um, we're about halfway through um, the study right now. Um, and, and, you know, and we're, we, we've got some, some, you know, preliminary data uh, that's, you know, not ready for prime time yet, but, uh, you know, we're, we're getting there. And so we hope um, by the end of the study, we're, we're maybe have a, a little bit better understanding of, you know, what, what we do, uh, making sure that what we do is based in, in, in evidence and we're not just doing it because, well, that's the way we've always done it. It's the most dangerous words in any language. That's the way we've always done it. Um, <clears throat> so Chris, what, what led to you guys, um, uh, becoming a part of the study uh was it something that you you noticed at uh at metropolitan ems or was it something that uh um you know a, a deficiency or or something you were interested about or were you asked to participate how'd that come about yeah so uh, the university of pittsburgh is actually the the lead site uh for the study and they have ems agencies all across the country um you know ground ambulances air uh, medical transport um, you know, small rural areas, you know, uh, and then large, larger urban areas as well. You know, and so we were, we were asked to participate, you know, our, our trauma uh, Institute at the university of Louisville, um, you know, was a, a participant with other studies uh, and we were asked to be a part of the lights network. And so there's, there's several uh, task orders, if you will, within that network. Uh, and so we were uh, asked and, qualified uh to to be able to provide um the care and the the data that you know is needed uh to participate in the, in the study so give us just a little bit of background so your folks are in the study and we know that we're dealing with trauma patients here but what's the premise i mean do they get to pick what they want 
is it something that they when the patient meets this criteria they just have to do so what's the what's the basis for the study how does it work yeah so you know basically um with the step wedge study um you know when we first started the study everybody was in standard of care you know so whatever agency um provided their standard of care when it came to airway management and then each site uh, is randomly selected and the statisticians kind of do their magic in the background to determine, you know, which sites get stepped next. And that step uh, is a deviation from the standard of care to changing just the airway adjunct only. So, um, you know, for, for us, the standard of care, you know, the provider typically would intubate a patient that needed uh, airway management. Uh, so when we are stepped into the, uh, into the study, we will go to superglottic airway only uh, for the first attempt. And it's the first attempt that we're really looking at, not a rescue attempt or any uh, follow-up uh, attempts. Uh, and so at that point, the, the provider will be, um, I say forced, but they will, will their first attempt will be spoken for um, with that superglottic airway. Uh, and, and again, so the inclusion criteria, you know, is basically any trauma patient uh, that the provider uh, deems needs to have their airway managed uh, is enrolled in the study. Uh, the exclusions, you know, uh, no pediatrics, uh, no caustic burns, uh, no, you know, things along those lines. So this is only this is only uh, trauma patients, Chris, or um, uh, do you have non-trauma patients as well? So this particular study is just for trauma patients. Okay, um, it, it's actually being uh, sponsored by the DoD. Uh, they're, they're the ones, uh, foot in the bill. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're interested obviously in the, in the trauma sector. Um, and, and so that's how this, the study was, um, uh, developed, uh, from a trauma perspective, okay. but I well, think there could be, yeah. I, I think there could be some, you know, uh, behind, you know, some, some knowledge that we could glean, mm -hmm. you know, from a trauma patient that could carry over to the medical side as well. Um, obviously, you know, trauma patients, you know, they're going to bring a little bit more uh, chaos to the scene, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> you know, because you never know what that trauma is going to be, yeah. um, whether it's, you know, penetrating trauma to the to the head or the face, um, you know, or blunt, blunt trauma, you know, from an MVA or something like that. And, and exactly. Um, and then if the trauma, you know, impedes upon their airway, uh, that makes things even a little bit more interesting, right? Uh, especially when you're talking about a superglottic uh, and depending on which one you're using, uh, how they, they might actually work in those environments. Well, that, that's a, a hole in the, in the research currently anyway. You know, most of the direct comparisons we have with superglottic airways versus, uh, versus uh, intubation are non-traumatic medical arrests. Uh, and the only one we have, you know, comparing BVM versus intubation really is, is uh, the, uh, Gaussian trial out of uh, out of UCLA Harbor Medical Center, and that was pediatrics only. So uh, that it would it will be interesting to see how uh, how your stuff comes out. Yeah, I think we're we're all uh, you know excited to see what the outcome is, uh, and then uh, you know depending on what that outcome is, I think you know from an EMS standpoint, you know if if it says superglottics just as good or better, you know uh, that that may begin to to 
make people scratch their heads or uh, you know chris chris you're walking <laughs> you're walking the line now gotta let you finish your thought but this is going to be a great transition yeah i think it, it'll begin to beg the question of you know should we you know in the pre-hospital setting be intubating uh and and at least for the trauma patient, uh, this study aims to, to hopefully answer that question. Yeah, when we think about this, and Kelly, get ready, man, put up your dukes, right? So now uh, when we think about this, I talked about the transition of EMS over the years, you know, the Life Pack 1 and and mass pants and Britillium and, you know, all the things that we used to do that we thought were great treatments that uh, maybe there was research that said they weren't. Maybe we just went ahead and moved. You know, we talk about capnography. We talk about entitled CO2, which you can use, by the way, with an adjunct airway. Mm -hmm. um, is it time? Is it time now that we stop intubating and start using rescue area? Let me give you, let me give you as, a, as a chief of EMS in my last operational role, uh, just before I left to go out and, and do my own consulting work, uh, all the EMS systems that were involved, the first responders, there was about eight of them. We all had the same medical director. We were all working off the same protocols. And the epiphany came, why don't we allow the first responders, EMTs as well as paramedics, to use an adjunct airway, i.e. the IGEL, if they make the determination that an advanced airway needs to be given. And if the paramedics show up on scene and there is already an advanced airway in place, intubation would not be needed. But why do we have to wait for an ALS provider to show up to drop an adjunct airway? And uh, we were months away, and this is going back to 2015, we were months away from putting that in play but Chris, now, as we talk about this, and Kelly, I know you'll want to argue this point as well, but to you, Chris, is intubation really something, and we know that this is your opinion and not the opinion of your agency, is something that may go by the wayside one day? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, it definitely could, right? And I think that, you know, we've we've been debating it, and I think, you know, every every provider, every paramedic uh, you know, is biased one way or another, right? Because I think when, when we're when we're born as paramedics, we, it is impressed upon us that one of the major, you know, things that makes us paramedics, right, is that skill. Uh, you know, and I think that at some point we have to say, well, is the skill what makes us a paramedic, or is it the ability to critically think? Uh, no. <laughs> you know, and the, the ability to provide, provide appropriate care um, and and improve the outcomes of the patients. You know, I think that's what, what should make the paramedic and not just an individual skill. You know, now that's not to say that I don't think intubation is important or that paramedics can't intubate. But I think there's a lot of caveats and a lot of things that go along with that uh, that skill uh, and that intervention that, that maybe as a profession and, and I'm sure there's some agencies that do it well. And, you know, we certainly try in our agency, you know, but, but you can't just have a skill that you use frequently and you never train on it and you have no quality assurance program. Uh, and, and there's no accountability, you know, to, to make sure that you're doing the right thing uh, at the right time uh, for the right patient. Uh, and so, you know, I think intubation is certainly uh, something that uh, I don't 
it's on the chopping block, maybe, you know, uh, it has been. Uh, and so hopefully, you know, um, we, from this study, we can garner some, some evidence uh, and, and maybe make some, some informed decisions about how we move forward uh, as a profession uh, in managing patients' airways. Chris, Chris, I have a very important question to ask. Um, will you marry me? Because <laughs> I have been saying that very thing for years. For as long as we have been debating this issue, and it's been going on for 15 plus years now, uh, and ever since Henry Wang's studies uh, uh, were published that, that showed just how poorly we do as a profession, there are pockets of excellence out there, but as a profession, how poorly we do uh, at endotracheal intubation, this has been a hot button issue. And people claim, uh, cling to this, and it's such a trigger for them because of the very things you mentioned. We as EMS have a really bad habit of defining ourselves by a scope of practice and a psychomotor skill set and not a body of knowledge. And, uh, you know, you, you, people think, oh, my God, I'm not going to be a paramedic if you take my tube away. Well, as a profession, we haven't proved that we're worthy of having that tube. You know, I, I don't think they're going to take endotracheal intubation away from physicians in the emergency department. Presumably, it is still a, a valuable skill. The question is, is, is why in the pre-hospital setting uh, are, are we doing it so poorly? Uh, I don't think, I think Chris thought I was going to vociferously defend the practice of inter, inter, uh, endotracheal intubation, but I'm not. Uh, I, I think we've demonstrated by and large as a profession with those noted exceptions that we, we don't care enough about it to, uh, to prove that we do it well. Um, but you know, it's, uh, it, it's getting to the point with the studies we have thus far that, uh, at least for the purposes of resuscitation, superglottic airways are as good as at least poorly performed endotracheal intubation which is the most common type of endotracheal intubation in the pre-hospital setting. Uh, I, I keep saying that uh, one day we're going to find a, an agency that really does it well, and we'll get to see what superglottic airways do compared to, to well-performed endotracheal intubation. But why do you think, it, uh, and, and the, the segue I want to make is, is at your agency, um, have you found that uh, that your providers are are also kind of it's a hot button issue for them as well? So, oh my God, are we uh, uh, are they thinking about taking away intubation and and uh, uh, who will I be if uh, if I if I can't tube someone a wheel a laryngoscope? Do you have that kind of pushback? Well, I, I, I think that there probably definitely are some of those those individuals. Um, you know, I, I think they they tend to be the, the more experienced providers. Uh, and, and maybe some of the, the younger ones as well that, you know, uh, you know, you know, really gravitate towards, um, you know, that that individual skill. But I think that, you, you know, for us, I mean, you talked about, you know, in, in the cardiac arrest patient resuscitation, you know, for for us, we we give them one uh, one attempt. Uh, in, in those patients, they've got one uh, bite of the apple, and then if they're not successful, then we move on. And, and I think that anybody who who takes an honest look, you know, in in the resuscitation center, and I know this is not you know a resuscitation uh, topic today, but just for a second, you know, if you really look and and, and you you evaluate your performance as an agency in, in managing those patients, 
and, and you look at your CPR analytics and, you, and you're, you're really taking a, a deep dive, then you don't have to be convinced because it's right there in front of you, most likely, that you have folks that have all the best intentions in the world, but they're stopping CPR to intubate. Uh, their, their, their intubation attempts are prolonged, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, how, how we, do we continue those practices, you know, when we're here to, to provide the best care and we want the best outcomes from our patients, but we're shooting ourselves in the foot when we do those kinds of things. So, you know, I think it's important that, you know, agency leadership and, you know, uh, decision makers you know, really put into place safeguards to, to push our providers to say, look, intubation is great. It has, you know, a, it has applications um, and you can do it. But if you can't get it done in a timely manner, you know, efficiently, then let's move on to something that's just as good, you know, so that the patient has a fighting chance and we can focus on the important things, you know, yeah. like CPR and resuscitation, you know. And so I, I think, you know, for us in, in that arena specifically, you know, I think that most of our paramedics, I think they feel, you know, very comfortable that when they arrive on the scene, if a, at Agile, that's, is, which is what we use uh, for our superglottic airway in our system, uh, is in place, then they're going to leave it. You know, if it's not working or, if, you know, if there's some kind of, you know, um, emesis or other, other concerns that they need to address, maybe they, maybe they remove it in those instances. But I think large in part, if there's an Agile in place, our, our folks are going to leave it uh, and, and move on you know, to, to more important yeah. things or, or other things that need to be dealt with. Um, and, and so I think, I think that's important, you know, that, that providers kind of let go, you know, of, well, I have to get, you know, an ET tube in um, and, and really think about what, what the patient's condition is and what additional yeah. things need to be done that they might, might not be uh, focusing on. Yeah. And I think that one of the big challenges is the culture of the agencies as we've gotten this forward intubation yeah. success has become a big ego thing right i mean we were getting you know guff back in the old days because uh we didn't have a patient intubated when we rolled into the er i said well i'm not working with 15 people i'm working by myself and my partner is driving at 70 miles an hour down the road and it was more important that i get a uh you know that i bag the patient or put in something to secure the airway than it was to intubation and we've never really addressed the culture and, you know, as you talk about, we've learned if there's anything from research and Kelly will say all the time that 50% of the things that we teach in paramedic school is wrong. We just don't know which 50% that we've just set this up as a standard that this has to be done. And, and, you know, paramedics will take five and six attempts again for their own ego to try to pass this tube once they start, you know, Chris, I applaud you and in, in, in my systems as well, that I have the honor of running. I only give them one look as well. You know what the landmarks look like. You know how to work the tools. Go in there, lift up that molecular. If you can't pass the tube, you're done. And it's not because I don't trust you. It's because then there's other things that we can do. But I do think that this is the is the final push, man. I think that it's studies like this and studies in the past that are showing us that intubation may not be needed we did what we had to do because that's all we had and they gave us that skill to say look if this is an opportunity use it but if there's a better tool now that doesn't mean we're going backwards 
It means that we're moving forward and we need to be able to grow the career field and not worry about what we don't do anymore. No, I a hundred percent agree. And I, and I think that, you know, when, when you talk about um, intubation, you know, and, and passing the tube and, you know, I think that the other thing to consider here, you know, we briefly touched on quality assurance programs and, you know, and those things, but I think you have to set yourself up, you know, for success uh, with intubation too. You have to have the tools, you know, at your disposal uh, to make yourself successful. Um, you know, whether that's a stylet, you know, back, back in the day, you know, stylets were, you know, voodoo, then paramedics just shouldn't have stylets. Well, that, that seems crazy to us now, right? Uh, so whether that's stylets or, you know, uh, bougies or, you know, video laryngoscopes, you know, all of those tools, you know, if you're going to say we're going to do this, then you need to invest in the, the equipment to, to make you successful. And I think one of the things that, that has to be part of that is, you know, entitled CO2. You know, yeah. if you're going to put an airway into a patient, if you're going to put a tube in their, uh, in their throat, then you had better be sure that it is in the right place and that it is working how it's supposed to work. And if it's not, then you should try something else, yeah. you know, uh, ventilate them, <clears throat> excuse me, ventilate them, uh, you, you know, and, and manage that airway because it is unacceptable for any EMS provider to not know with 100%, you know, certainty that the airway that they've placed uh, is, is providing adequate ventilations uh, and, and gas exchange for that patient, which, which is evident by that that uh, entitled CO2 uh, device. Yeah. Amen, brother. Preach. Let's choir song. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, you're, you're singing the song of my people. You know, I, I, I tease Chris, you know, and I've said this on this podcast many a time that, you know, I can fall down a flight of stairs and accidentally intubate five people on the way down. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but the question is, should I? You know, and we know more and more that, um, that, that, you know, intubation, like, for example, your failing CHFR is a great big line in the sand to cross, you know, that makes their clinical course and their outcome more uncertain. Um, and, and, you know, my agency uh, in five years tripled their cardiac arrest survival rates by doing two things. We quit, quit taking dead people to the hospital and we started telling our medics, hey, if you can't get the tube, no biggie. You know, get it later as a post-resuscitation stabilization or drop a superglottic airway. We're not going to gig you uh, if you didn't get the tube because we we realized that, that focusing on that tube to the exclusion of CPR uh, was detrimental to the patient. And it... It occurs to me that that I have never been as skilled at airway management as I am right now, including endotracheal intubation. Yet at the same time, I have never been less likely to intubate someone than I am right now. I have options, uh, and and I uh, over the course of my career, I've developed some some restraint, some circumspection. Uh, where I know that airway management is, is is a lot more complicated than GCS less than eight intubate, uh, <laughs> you know. But that's the that's the thing is is um, over the years we've learned, and hopefully the rest of EMS uh, 
is learning as well that uh, this is not just something we should we should stake ourselves to the crossover uh, and and uh, if we're going to keep it as a a skill, however little utilized, we need to prove that we're better at it. Uh, and and if you don't have capnography at your agency, you are you're flat out negligent. But hey, I've been rattling on for a while, uh, Mr. Lockett. Do you have any final thoughts before we go to close? No, I just uh, you know I appreciate the opportunity to come on and uh, talk with you you guys today. And uh, you know, again, I think you know airway is an important thing. Uh, airways get managed every day in EMS, and I, and I think that you know it's an important uh, consideration in how we we move forward as a profession and ensure that we're we're not just doing something uh, because that's the way we've always done it, or you know our 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 thought that you know if if we abandon a skill or an intervention uh, for something that's better, that somehow that makes us less of a of a, a provider uh, for that patient. So, uh, greatly appreciate the the opportunity today. You know, a wise man once said that the the uh, mark of uh, or the measure of intelligence of another man is the extent to which he agrees with you. Uh, and and by that measure, you are a friggin' genius, man. You are a genius. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Do you think superglottic airways are here to stay? Do you think they're going to eventually supplant endotracheal intubation? If you want to claim to endotracheal intubation, what is your agency doing to prove that you do it well? We'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at ems1.com. And for myself, co-host Chris Sobolero and the airway wizard Chris Lockett, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS, and we're going to catch you fellas next week. <laughs>